For the last 40 years, Ellen Raskin's The Westing Game has been instrumental in introducing young readers to so many key elements of great books. A whodunit storyline, a fascinating ensemble cast of characters, and a gift that keeps on giving kind of ending. It's also won the Newbery Medal and generally become a beloved work of kidlet. In fact, it seems like I never stop meeting people of all ages who tell me that The Westing Game was their favorite read growing up. And for good reason. The plot of The Westing Game is so well done and beautifully written that we spend more time than usual in this episode diving into details of the storyline, so I won't bore you with too many up front. Suffice it to say that the book is named for Sam Westing, a mysterious millionaire who brings a motley crew of neighbors together prior to his death so that they can ultimately work as a team to figure out who murdered him. Creepy, right? The game is made all the more interesting by the fact that Westing informs the so-called heirs that his murderer is actually among them, and that the winner of the game will come into a hefty chunk of cash that will change his or her life forever. Are you intrigued? You're about to hear a lot more, and you'll be along for the ride as my guests and I do our best to keep track of the many twists and turns that take place in the Westing game. Just bear with us, okay? We're only human. The guest on this episode is Lauren Boone, a producer-director from the Bay Area and a resident director at Third Culture Theater in Los Angeles. Lauren started her career in the theater world at the California Shakespeare Theater, and after working at a few different companies throughout the Bay in multiple aspects of theater, her passion for telling stories brought her to directing in San Francisco and producing for both the stage and screen. Lauren has produced two short films and has a third in development, which she will also direct. Last year, she directed and produced Episodes for Couplets, a DPL Productions web series. Lauren currently works at Renaissance Literary and Talent, an agency that represents authors, manages talent, and specializes in book-to-film and TV adaptations, which happens to be one of her favorite types of film. Follow Lauren on Instagram at lalafalana. I'll include the link to Lauren's Instagram feed directly in our show notes at www.ssrpodcast.com listen, along with links to all of the books that we discuss on today's episode. As always, when you shop those links, you're supporting the SSR podcast in the process, so thanks in advance. All right, friends, it's time to get lost in the crazy world of the Westing game. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is shit she read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Lauren. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thanks for having me. So a little birdie told me, and that birdie's name is Rose McAleese, and she was <gasps> the guest on our Julie of the Wolves episode. That's episode yes. 16 for those who want to check it out. This little bird told me that you are somewhat of a Westing game buff, so I may or may not have kind of hinted hard when you and I were emailing that, <laughs> oh, I don't know, like maybe we should talk about the Westing game. <laughs> Top of the list definitely ideal placement of that title. I love it. I'm so ready. Excellent. So tell me a little bit more about your history with the book, why you love it so much, and why you're open to talking about it with me one more time. Because to be fair, I did give you other options. Yes. No, you did. They were all good options. Well, I read this book, I want to say seventh or eighth grade, but after rereading it, I'm like, it had to be eighth grade because this book is 
insane. It's kind of even more so than I remembered. It's so all over the place. But I don't know what your process was if you read in grade school, but how we did it was we would have assignments to read it at home. And then at school, we would read out loud. Like someone would raise their hand and be like, you know, yes, Lauren, do you want to read? And then you'd read, you know, three or four pages and then you'd talk about it. And that was like a huge source of anxiety for me because I love to read and I loved it, but I was like, Oh my God, am I going to stumble over my words? Am I going to lose my breath? Like, am I going to say the wrong thing? So I would always read ahead to be like, do I have this section? Like, can I, can I raise the hand for this? And for this book in particular, I have a very specific memory of deciding that it was time for me to raise my hand and, and talk and read. And I didn't get called on. But when I was looking ahead, I saw what I thought was the word orgasm. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to say it was like organized. <laughs> That's or organic, like one of these words. And so I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to say this word. Like, am I ready for this? Like, is this appropriate in eighth grade? So I was like, OK, like, you know what? You're in high school soon. Like, this is just how life is. Right, Sometimes you have to it. say orgasm. So I raise my hand. Don't get called on. Someone else starts reading and they say what the word actually is like organism or something. And I just like freeze in my seat. I just remember sitting there being like, <laughs> Oh my God, I almost just fucked everything up for life. Like I was almost that girl that said orgasm in class. Honestly, so, that really could have redirected your entire middle school, high school. It really could it have changed really could everything have. for you. I'm, I'm going to say you dodged a bit of a bullet on that one. <laughs> I did. And it was this book. So when Rose was talking about that, I was like, oh my God, do I have a story for you about when I read in fucking grade school and I almost said orgasm. But other than that, the biggest thing that I remember about this book is that it was one of the first books that I read that duped me mm. where I, I didn't see the ending coming necessarily. I knew that there was some buildup, but at the end I was, I was fooled and I was like, oh, what, you know, cause there's all these twists and turns and mistaken identity and all these clues. And I was such a adventure girl. Like I was like the main character, one of them turtle. Like I was totally like her. I was all into everyone's business. I wanted to know what secrets everyone had. Harriet, the spy was life. And so being fooled by this book was like a big moment for me. And now, you know, I work in the entertainment industry and I have, I read, I read so many manuscripts and story and we're always talking about, you know, ways to essentially accomplish this. And this is a children's book and this was really my first experience with it. So I, I just have a fondness for it because I remember liking that feeling for the first time at that age. Well, what's super interesting too about this idea of being duped, because I agree, as a kid, it totally duped me and I have not reread this in the 20 years since I read it yes, the first time. So um, coming back to it, I didn't remember the ending and it was funny because my husband who loves this book and has said to me several times since I've had it sitting around the apartment, like, oh my gosh, I can't wait for this episode. Um, he remembered <laughs> the ending and he does not have oh, a great memory. Did. Like there's, he has, I'm going to say he has a bad memory. And so, um, <laughs> last night when I was finishing the book, he was like, the ending is so good. You just have to get to the ending. <laughs> Remember, it's so great. And I, I was like, honestly, I, I have no idea. And, and there's so many characters in this book, which we'll get into. And you do get this feeling about halfway through where you're like, I have no fucking idea which way this book is going to go. Like there's, it's sort of this sense of chaos. Like everybody has these ideas about who's responsible for Sam Westing's death and there's bombs going off. And I'm like, I don't know. Um, but I pushed through because my husband remembered the crazy ending. And I think what's interesting about 
the fact that she was able to dupe so many of us as the author is that she didn't plan the plot ahead of time. I don't know if you read this anywhere, but in the introduction of the edition that I have, and then I was doing some reading online just kind of about the history of the book, she had no outline. When she went to her editor, she basically said, like, I have no idea what this book is about. I'm just going to start it. So she didn't really have a map for how things were going to go at the end. And realizing that just really blows my mind, especially as a writer. And I'm sure you can relate to that. That is crazy. And I guess if if I'm thinking about it now, it kind of makes sense because nothing was obvious. Everything was so subtle. So if she was just throwing in like, oh yeah, I talked about this point here. So maybe I'll drop it back in here, here, here. I mean, it was truly a trail of crumbs this entire book. I mean, she's so talented. The subtleties in this book blew my mind. And I just had to like, think like, what, what did I think when I read this book as a kid? I remember feeling huge at the end, but I don't necessarily remember sitting here being like, okay, like this is the first clue. This is the second clue. I mean, it was still a book I was reading at school, you know, whereas at home I was reading like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and holes and like things like that, that were much more like adventure and fun. And this was a little bit more literary for me at the time. But I mean, I I had to keep up as an adult. I had to sort of like be like, okay, wait, there's a clue. Here's, I mean, just the little tiny subtleties, like the chess or, you know, the limps and all that. I'm like, who's limping? Who's playing chess? Like, uh." (laughs) but it's amazing. It still works today. It does. And I said to you, I said this to you before we started recording. So I'll let the listeners know as well. Like I I said to Lauren, we might need to help each other out with the details of this book (laughs) because I think we both read a lot and and we're both keeping up with a lot of different content. And I tried my best to keep track of all of the details in this mystery, but it was hard. There's a lot going on. There is kind of this sense of of chaos is how I felt for, I'd say, like the middle third of this book where I was like, are we going to find out what happened? Again, why are there bombs? Why are there fireworks? I feel like I've kind of lost track of where we're supposed to be going here. So forgive us in advance, listeners. We might be figuring some of this out as we go, but it's going to be really fun. One of the things that I realized as I was reading this book, and again, kind of remembering how I felt about it when I was a kid, because I know that I loved it. Like I remember for a while this being my favorite book when people asked me what my favorite book was when I was maybe in like late elementary school, early middle school. This was definitely it. And I think what I loved best about it at that point was sort of this like zany cast of characters. And it was probably one of the first, if not the first book that I remember reading that had this sense of like an ensemble and these interconnected stories and these big personalities that were interacting, but also having their own sort of like private narratives going on. And that's the kind of reader that I am now. I always gravitate toward character-driven books. I love some good interconnected stories. I love books like The Interestings, This Is Where I Leave You, anything by Jonathan Franzen, (laughs) anything that's just like loaded with great characters where you have to keep up with all of their histories and get a sense of where each of them are now versus where they were before. So I, as I was reading this book this time, was thinking like, maybe this kind of paved the way for me as an adult reader too. Yeah, absolutely. I I totally feel the same way about that. This book leaves no prisoners. Like you really, you cannot half-ass this book. And I think that that's really good etiquette to start teaching kids at a young age. It certainly helped with me, but I have to admit my secret to finishing this book and getting through it was getting the audiobook because that's actually how I read 
a lot as a kid, actually predominantly as a kid. My dad and I had long commutes to get to and from school. So we'd get the audio tape so he could read along with me because this is when Harry Potter was just coming out. So he wanted to read it too. And I would sit there with the book. So it helped me develop not only just good reading habits of really like pacing and taking the time to finish a chapter and then stop, you know, as opposed to just like, oh, I'm distracted. I'm going to put a bookmark in it and walk away. So when it kind of got to that middle section of chaos, I was like, okay, I need to, I focus really well when I'm in the car. And so I got the audio book and I plugged it in and it helped me immensely. I was like, oh wow. Cause a lot of the times when you're reading this, it just, it just switches between points of view. All of a sudden we're thinking with this person and then it's this person. Oh, and then it's this note. And you're like, what is this? What is this new text? Like it's all over the place. So the audiobook really helps with that. So you should try listening to a part of it just to see if it has anything different for you, because that really pushed me through to the end of it and sort of brought everything full circle, even with the voices. It's just fun. I think about a person sitting in a booth, actually reading it and it, it's so weird, but I, I love it. Well, and you live in LA, right? So you have a lot of car time. Oh my God. Yes. So much car time. It's been a long time since I read an audiobook. I actually, I maybe one audiobook in the last like 15 years, which I know is controversial. So many of the book lovers that I'm connected with now on Instagram are huge fans of audiobooks. And I should probably like just try to check them out again. And I think you're right. I think it's a good way to sort of like focus on certain things. Something that I found interesting in reading this book was I, knowing that it was a whodunit and knowing that I would need to kind of like talk to you about the clues that helped us figure out whodunit. Uh I was having trouble distinguishing as I was going through like which details here are going to be important and which details are just kind of like fun character development. And not that any of it was like more or less important because like I said, I kind of dig the character stuff more than anything. But I think you're right. Maybe listening to the audio would have helped sort that out a little bit more easily. If for nothing else, truly just the voices, because you're like, okay, now this person's talking and this person, then I develop a voice for each character. And so you sort of know throughout. But what I thought was interesting is, uh, as I'm sure you picked up, one of the huge themes of this book is identity and stereotypes. Mm. And so I was like, oh, what are they going to do with this ebook? Are they going to like put on a, a Chinese accent or, you know, some sort of Ebonics accent, you know, for all the characters? And they didn't really, which I thought was probably for the best, <laughs> but they still delve into so many of those things. So here, I think about a kid reading this, here are all these clues, like we're talking about, here's all this chaos, yet the underlying themes and the subtleties of just these layered stereotypes and, and trying to figure figure out who is who I'm like, do kids pick up on that? Did we pick up on that? And that's sort of like when we move forward, we're like really thinking about those things. I don't know. I mean, I I would like to think that I did as a kid. Well, I definitely picked up on them this time around and we're going to get into all the clues and the mystery and all that fun stuff. But I do think it's important that we touch on this a little bit further and kind of what Ellen Raskin, the author, was trying to achieve with some of these devices that she was using, as Lauren said, with respect to race and gender and nationality and all of those things. So in my research for this conversation, I stumbled on a review in the Wales Arts Review of the book, which was written in 2014. Again, kind of doing what you and I are doing, reviewing the book from an adult perspective. And it was a really great review. As always, it'll be linked in the show notes. And I pulled out a few quotes that I just wanted to mention that relate to what we're talking about. The author wrote, despite being written in a time before feminism and multiculturalism really began to influence the world of literature, especially children's literature, 
Raskin shows a range of personalities and experiences, and she subtly argues against racist, xenophobic, and misogynistic views. Then she goes on to say, Raskin mocks all the old-fashioned ideas that are implicit in these characters' lives. She questions and forces the reader to question why we should be surprised that a black woman from a poor family would become a high-powered figure, or why we are unwelcoming towards immigrants or patronizing towards the disabled or frightened and challenged by smart females. She lets the characters develop to learn from their mistakes and to not be shaped solely by beliefs about who and what they should be. And because of that, those who hold stereotyped or racist views are likewise encouraged to grow and to change. She nailed it. Whoever wrote that. <laughs> shout out to the Wales Arts Review. Shout out. I totally agree. I mean, you're reading this and you're listening to the way that these people speak to each other and then think about each other, which don't always, of course, line up. But you read it now and you're like, that's so, it's so ridiculous. Like, that's so inappropriate to say those kinds of things. But I wrote down one quote from Judge Ford, who is the African-American woman you were speaking of, who sort of came from nothing and became the first elected judge to the state. And she sort of makes an off-the-cuff comment about their delivery boy who's annoying her. And she's like, oh, well, you know, he's stupid or says something, you know, just something pretty bland like that. And then she thinks to herself, I can't say things like that. Not the first black, the first woman to have been elected the judge judge of the state. So it's just like that little line. I was like, wow. I, I mean, she's really, it's such an honest portrayal. I mean, women, especially women of color, really have to think about that even still to this day. And this is written in, what, 78? Yeah, 1978. Yeah. And specifically, we also have... Well, we have Grace Wexler, who is just an asshole. She's the worst. <laughs> She's the worst. She's kind of the perpetrator of all of the evils that Ellen Raskin is trying to fight against. She mm-hmm. makes fun of Madame Who, who is married to... Mr. Who. Mr. Who. <laughs> I'm trying to find his first name. James Who. James, yes. James. There's James, Jake, and all that stuff. Listeners, <laughs> there's so many characters. There's so many characters. So Madam Who has recently immigrated from China, and Grace Wexler is just, like, ruthless in the way that she treats her and makes fun of her and makes fun of the way she talks and the way that she doesn't know a lot of English words, uses extremely offensive language about her that I'm not going to repeat, but you can probably guess the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Also in the book, we have Chris, who is a, an 11-year-old boy who is confined to a wheelchair after he contracted this really scary illness like four years ago. And it's also caused his speech to be impeded. And so um, in the book, it's very clear the way that Ellen has written the way that he speaks, that he doesn't know how to speak clearly anymore. And things like that at first made me really uncomfortable because I don't know that that's something that an author would get away with today. Like, like you were mentioning, it's sort of the idea of just disrespecting someone by making such a clear point of the fact that like they don't speak the way that other people do. I understand that he maybe doesn't talk like everyone else because he's had this awful disease, but I don't necessarily think that authors in 2018 would put such a fine point on it. So at first I was like, I'm not sure what you're trying to do here. Ellen Raskin, my friend. Ellen, quote, quote, Ellen. L, my friend L. Then there was also a lot of like really nasty things said about Turtle, who, as you mentioned, is one of the shining stars of this book and probably my favorite character. How can you not? (laughs) 
Again, her mother, who is the awful Grace Wexler, has a lot to say about the fact that she's very precocious and not really interested in the things that, quote unquote, traditional ladies might be interested in. Her mother is really encouraging the older sister, Angela, to move forward with her plan to get married. And like, that's definitely what she wants for her children. So she has a lot of nasty things to say about Turtle being smart and kind of being interested in other things. So at first, I would say for the first half of the book, I was like, again, I'm not really sure what the author is trying to do here. Like, am I supposed to think that these are norms that she's trying to condone? Because again, it's 1978. We're not really sure where she's coming from. And then as the book progresses, you realize that she's proving out that all of these racist, misogynistic, xenophobic behaviors are wrong. It just Mm -hmm. takes till the second half of the book for you to get there. Yeah, which I think is a really smart tactic, especially for that time. I think that that sort of subtle art of convincing you to think something by the end that is so blatantly something else at the beginning is challenging for any writer and most readers to actually pick up on. But the way that she does it in this book by the end, you're like, wow, yeah. If I thought a different, I was totally an asshole at the beginning. Or look at look at these characters. Look at how much better they are now that they've come around and they've really checked themselves at the door, so to speak. Yeah, because she made me appropriately uncomfortable for the first half of the book. Yeah, I mean, the I think the worst one for me was when she throws Angela's bridal shower and she makes Mrs. Who like dress up in some skimpy oriental outfit with like a slit up the leg. And And she's so excited about it. She's like, great news guys. Yeah. Guess who's here. Oh, it was awful. Awful. Yeah. Fun fact. uh, Another article that I read in preparation for this conversation with you was from bustle. And it was like the 12 life lessons that we've learned from the Weston game. And one of them was like bridal showers are the worst. Oh yeah. Bomb. Cultural appropriation. Yeah, I mean, poor Angela. She just did not have a good shower. I'm sorry. Sorry, Angela. That just did not work out for you. I mean, part of that was her own fault. That's we have true. To say. That's but true. She has she set off her own bomb. But because her life was such shit, yeah, can moms, you blame man, her? they can really fuck you up or make you the best person ever. Luckily, I have an amazing mother who would never force me to marry an intern I did not want to marry. <laughs> That's true. That I'm ha- very happy for you. Very happy that you're not on the same track as Angela <laughs> Wexler here. So let's talk about the premise of the story because it's super cool. And I do think that in getting back into the book, I remembered pretty quickly, like, oh, I remember this being awesome. Like sometimes when I'm coming back to a book that I haven't read in 20 years, I have no memory of the story. Sometimes I remember every detail. With this book, I just sort of had this like vague sense that the setup was really cool. And again, this like really interesting cast of characters. So the idea here is that Sam Westing is this very mysterious, wealthy man that lives in town. They live in Wisconsin, right near Lake Michigan. And he lives or lived in this very like creepy house on the hill, as many mysterious men do. And he has bought this apartment building called Sunset Towers. And at the beginning, we are introduced to Barney Northrup, who is this man kind of running about town, extending invitations to very specific people who he wants to sell the units in Sunset Towers to. Fast forward a few chapters, we discover that Sam Westing is dead. Turtle Wexler is actually the first one we know to find him dead in his house because she, of course, is being like mischievous and doing her own damn thing and in the house on Halloween. And Westing's lawyer then goes on to gather 
all of the people in Sunset Towers, again, the people who Westing has extended these specific invitations to, and informs them that they are the heirs to Westing's will. But in order to collect the money, which is $200 million, worth noting that that's a lot of money in 2018 and a shit ton of money in 1978, (laughs) so much money. In order to get that money, they're going to have to sort of figure out this series of clues. He's going to assign them into pairs, and they're going to have to figure out who killed him. Does that all check out for you? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, there's so many things that she's throwing out. She's like, money, this is great. By the way, one of you killed me. So watch out. So it immediately there's a sense of competitiveness mm-hmm. and fear, like hand in hand, like, let's get this bread. Please don't kill me. Right. Cause one of the heirs, quote unquote heirs, because they're obviously not all going to inherit his money theoretically right. is also his murderer, or so we are told. Yes. It feels very much like a reality show, and maybe this is just a 2018 <laughs> reading, and I love me some reality TV, but I was like, this would be a great reality show, and it would be a great movie. I'm surprised that this hasn't been made into a, a movie more recently. There was sort of a, an ad, uh, I think a TV adaptation in 1997 called Get a Clue. I don't know if you've heard about this, but that was an adaptation of Westing King. Apparently. Yeah. And I was, I think I saw that movie was, it was like a Disney channel original movie maybe. Yeah. And it, yeah, I think it was, it was not the Westing game. So I'm calling for a Westing game film adaptation. I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet because just in this setup alone, it sounds like a great movie to me. Well, you know, it's funny. I work at a literary agency and we do a lot of book to film adaptations. And we were talking about this and they were like, Hey, what's going on with the Westing game? Hmm. And that was like a few months ago. And that was sort of how this book came back into my life. Randomly. We were just talking about that, like this exact same conversation that make a great thing. Someone does have the rights to remake it. They just haven't done it yet. So if you're listening and that's you get your shit together, give us the movie we deserve. Why have you been sitting on this for so long? Yeah. Get it together. We've waited long enough. (laughs) Get a clue. (laughs) We're ready. Get a fucking clue. We're ready for the movie. So we have this setup, and at first it seems extremely random how these people are put together. In the end, we kind of figure out, like, why some of the pairs are assembled. But, like, let's talk about some of the pairs, because I think this is, like, a fun way to talk about the characters. It's maybe a fun way to talk about how the plot develops over the course of the book. Again, there's so many details here that I'm not really sure the best way for us to get at all of them. So let's go the character route, because I think we both like the characters. So Jake Wexler and Sun Lee Hu. Jake Wexler is husband of the awful Grace Wexler. And as we talked about, Sun Lee Hu is the immigrant wife of... James who and they forfeit their money right like they kind of drop out of the game Jake doesn't want anything to do with this process is that that's yeah right. yeah they don't they don't fucking care no. first of all but also when the invitations are passed out for the first reading of the will I don't know Jake doesn't get his and Mr. Who gets the invitation on behalf of him and his wife and he doesn't tell his wife so they don't come to the very first one. So they uh, automatically forfeit their right to play, basically, from that first sitting. But then they're at the second or third meeting. Somehow they get roped back into it. James Who gets roped back in, and Jake Wexler is kind of like on the outskirts of this whole process, like advising his wife and just generally being a podiatrist. That's... Yeah, and, it's, and Who's wife is just doesn't have... He, he has some companies like, oh, I should have told my wife about this, because they could have gotten $10,000, and that's all that 
he, Mr. Who is thinking about, and then Jake's wife, Grace, the awful Grace, they're like, why didn't my spouse come? We could have had 5,000 extra dollars. Yeah. We had some people really screwing up on this one, but anyway, not much to say about them. We've said what we have to say about Sunley who she's really victimized in this book by Grace Wexler. Unnecessary. Okay. <laughs> Judge JJ Ford and Sandy McSellers Southers. We mentioned Judge Ford. As you said, she is the first black woman to be elected to judge in the state. And then in the epilogue of the book, we actually find out that she's <laughs> been appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States. Way to go, Judge Ford. And then right. Sandy McSouthers is the doorman of the building. So let's talk about them a little bit. As a judge, she kind of like knows her stuff. She has a lot of good ideas about how to figure out the clues that they've been given, which are just a series of words. And she kind of wants to like skip that step and just like do some investigation. Yeah, truly. Like I need a private investigator. Right. And I love the parts where she's like, I knew that they were lying to me. She's like, I see people beg for their innocence or to prove their innocence every day. And she's like, I know all these people are full of shit. Like it's, it's just the nature of her job. She's so badass, and she just is inherently better at common sense than most of them. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I don't need to be bothered with these random slips of paper. Let me just get somebody on the phone. Who's going to track down some old newspaper clippings and we'll get to the bottom of who all these people are who live in my building. Right. Because the entire game itself isn't that clear. Everyone no. gets a set of clues of random words and that's it. Like, good luck. Yeah. And I will say that as an adult, like I wanted a little bit more clarity on the game as a kid. I think that was enough those like slips of paper. I was like, cool. Like I get this. This is a treasure hunt. And as an adult, it's harder to suspend disbelief about like that being enough information. I'm like, I need more parameters here. What are we supposed to be doing? The legality behind it. You know, they're like, should we be calling the police? Can we see the will? And they're like, actually, there's always like a, no, that doesn't, this isn't how that works. And as a kid, you're like, oh yeah, cool. Probably totally makes sense. And now you're like, "Mm." I don't know if that's how the law works, but let's just go with it. Yeah, you're like, I have a question. Yeah. I have a question. Um, Judge Ford also has an interesting role in all of this. A, a lot of these people have a connection to Sam Westing, but her perspective is is one where she actually lived in his house when she was a little girl because her mother worked for the Westing family, and um, he ended up paying for her education because he saw that she was promising and wanted to have a judge on his side down the road. So she kind of has this sense that like, there's something else going on here. Like she feels like she could be playing directly into Westing's hands because she just, she just thinks that there's something not quite straightforward and she ends up being right about that. Yeah. And I think that he gave her a lot of tough love and I think that she always wanted something more loving from him, something a little bit more warm. And he was like, no, like your life's going to be hard. You're going to have to learn how to be 10 steps ahead of everyone else and never let her win at chess. Always, you know, never let her win at any of the mind games that he played. And that was ultimately her biggest tool was to always try and see the bigger picture. Um, I think there's a lot of similarities between her and Turtle mm-hmm. ultimately, but absolutely she, she was fascinating. And she really plays a huge role in figuring out what's actually happened with Westing's death, which will wrap up after we go through the rest of these pairs. Next, we have Grace Wexler and James, who we've talked about them quite a bit already. If anything, I think that she serves as this like 
foil to all the good people in the book and is really just there to like antagonize the rest of the characters and they have this kind of like funny subplot going where she is trying to like take over the marketing for his restaurant and rename it and it's almost like an escape from her family like she just likes to go hang out at James's restaurant and like pretend that she has a job there oh yeah they're the odd couple Mm -hmm. they like weirdly fulfill in each other's lives what their spouse isn't giving them and like this sort of this need to be you know really aggressive and the best at everything they both have that and so they sort of take over each other's lives in that way not romantically but they're clearly a match in more ways than one which I thought was funny they sort of like deserved each other by the end of it yeah and they didn't play a huge role in figuring out like the Westing game itself but Grace was very proud of the fact that she was related to Sam Westing like that was her big thing at the beginning she's going on and on about how he's her uncle or her great uncle or something like that and we find out later in the book that there might even be a closer tie than that they both have a different last name than they say they have they both were born with a different name so that's kind of interesting but they don't really contribute all that much to like the whodunit piece of this book next we have turtle wexler Angel, 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 guys, baby. And Flora Bombach, who is like the older woman who lives in the building, who was a dressmaker who's lost her daughter. And similarly to Grace and James, these two like fulfill some interesting like holes in each other's lives because Turtle gets no positive attention from her family. And Flora lost her daughter years ago. So they kind of become this like really sweet mother-daughter team. And Turtle challenges Flora to get out of her comfort zone because Turtle decides that they're going to invest the money that they've gotten as part of this (laughs) this game in the stock market, which I'm obsessed with. I love that she like makes Flora go down to the stock market and like watch the ticker tape. I'm like, Turtle, what are you doing right now? Like, why are you sending Flora to do your dirty work? But But I love her for it. Yeah, I know. Well, I think a lot of times it's because she was in school. True. Like, imagine this, this like, 13-year-old girl doing long division, and then, you know, Flora's down there with the, the ticker tape. I mean, I, I loved it. I love Turtle. I love this relationship. I thought it was so heartwarming. And the little small details that you get, is even when, you know, she asks her about her daughter, and she says, was she pretty? Was she smart? And she said, she wasn't as smart as you, but she was amazing. And Turtle almost gets jealous. Mm. She's like, well, whatever, we're changing the subject. Because she doesn't get any love from her mom. Her mom literally makes her sleep in a closet. So and she never lives up to that expectation. So this relationship, again, on Sam Westing's part, you know what he was doing, pairing them together, I think. Yeah, and she um, she finally gets her hair braided by someone. She finally has somebody call her by a name other than Turtle, which is just like yeah. a mean nickname that her parents gave her when she was a baby. So it feels like she's just finally being appreciated, and they have, like, a really sweet relationship. Turtle's sort of longer-term trajectory is really great. We find out in the epilogue that she's just gone on to, like, essentially just be a badass and have an awesome education, and she takes over Sam Westing's company, and she ends up being, like, the person who really figures out what's going on with Sam Westing, which we'll circle back to momentarily. Next, we have Chris Theodorakis and Denton Deer. We've talked briefly about both of these guys. Chris is... Is the 11 year old boy who is in a wheelchair and Denton is Angela Wexler's fiance so he is the intern that you mentioned who Angela's parents have kind of set her up with and are hoping that Angela just like stays on the straight and narrow and becomes a wife to a doctor like that's the grand plan and Denton's just kind of like dull 
and he's like every like vanilla boring guy in a movie that you just you don't hate because he's bad but you just hate because there's nothing there yeah and there's like little moments of you know charisma and you know his I think the one redeeming quality she gave him is that he cares about Chris yeah his partner and he wants to actually find a way to help him and he thinks that he can and so he sort of really as opposed to trying to play the Westing game. He tries to do that, I think, for most of the story. Yeah, and Chris was used to being looked after by his older brother, Theo. And so at the beginning of the book, when they're split up into two different teams, it's very stressful for both of them because Chris is used to having Theo to help him, and Theo doesn't like the idea of Chris being unattended. So at first, I, as a reader, was worried that like Denton was not going to take good care of Chris as a partner, And it was nice to see that maybe Denton softened a little bit and learned to worry about something other than himself and Angela. And just just to see people beyond the exterior, which I think happens for Chris and all these names. Angela. Angela. Yeah, I'm telling you all the names. Bertha Erica Crow, and I use her full name because it ends up being extremely important at the end, and Otis Amber. This is an interesting little combo. What a crazy duo truly I mean these two like the biggest description like you know what these two look like the second they're described and the voices and their tone everything it's so it's so thorough throughout the book these two this is why we need the movie really I mean come on guys get it together how many times we have to say it so Otis (laughs) is presented to us at the beginning of the book as like the errand boy around town although he's extremely old like he's an errand man yeah He's an errand elderly. Um, he's an, yeah, he's an errand <laughs> elder. He's, like, running around town, making deliveries for people, essentially just, like, doing anything that anybody tells him to do. And Crow, as they refer to her through most of the book, is just kind of this, like, mysterious older woman. She cleans at Sunset Tower, so she lives in, like, the maid's apartment. We don't know much about her for the first, I would say, half of the book. And then we learn things like she's extremely religious She may have had a history with alcoholism. We end up following her through one of the other characters to like a soup kitchen that she's open. So there's a lot that we don't know about her, but there's something just like very endearing about her. Like you picture her kind of like opening the door to her apartment, a tiny little crack to see who's out there. And you just want to know more about her. And luckily we get that at the end. Yeah, she's definitely set up as a woman hiding from her past, which I think is so many women, you know, we put up barriers and we cover things up. And so you don't really know. It's one of those things where I'm like, am I reading too much into this? Like, is she an integral part of the story or is she just someone who has been mistreated her entire life? Um, And I think at one point, one of her thoughts is no one ever wonders where the maid lives. And it's sort of, it's set up that way in the book. I mean, for, like you said, the first half of the book, you don't really there's not much about her. And then you're like, oh, yeah, like she's here, too. So you as the reader fall into that trap almost like, oh, yeah, I forgot about her, you know? Yeah. I, and then every time she would come back in, I was like, is she the maid or is she? I couldn't remember. I couldn't quite place her mentally. Um, yeah, like what is her role here in this building? Yeah, and I think the author did a really good job of doing that because I don't know that she she gave you just enough information at the beginning, but she crafted it in a way where it was easy to like lose track of her. And I think yeah. that's like that's the magic of this book because in losing track of her, the characters let this like major bombshell go over their heads for so much of the game. Yeah. They could have solved it. 
Yeah, they could have solved it way earlier and and skipped a lot of like bombs going off and <laughs> other bombs. antics. The bombs. Yes. Theo Theodorakis and Doug Who. These are like the two young guys in the building. Theo is Chris's older brother. We mentioned that he is Chris's primary caretaker. And Doug is James's son. Mm -hmm. So he's the son of the man who owns the restaurant upstairs. And he's like a really great athlete is sort of his main storyline. And he's a little too cool for the game. Like Theo is really interested in figuring out the murderer. And Doug just like doesn't have a lot of time for it. You kind of picture Theo. Run, yeah, gotta, you picture Theo as being this like very eager neighbor who's like always like, okay, Doug, like, okay, Doug, like, let's go figure out the mystery. And Doug's like, okay, yeah, great. Let me know when it's over. Yeah, exactly. I loved Theo. Theo has this kind of interesting like subplot where he has a crush on Angela Wexler and we find out later that Theo's dad had once been in love with Sam Westing's daughter, Violet, who looked very much like Angela. And that was a forbidden love. And similarly, throughout this book, Angela is engaged to Denton. And so she can't be with Theo, but they have this very sweet interaction throughout the book. So I liked that. But again, not much to say about Theo and Doug as far as like figuring out the mystery. Yeah. And finally, we come to Angela Wexler and Sidel Pulaski. We've talked about Angela a lot. She's at the center of a lot of these different dynamics. She's very sweet. She had gone to college and done really well and kind of has all these secret ambitions to be a doctor, but her mom pulled her out of school and instead suggested that she get married instead. And uh, that's what she's doing right now and not very happily. Sidel, we find out, is like the woman who was the mistake. Like she wasn't actually supposed to be invited to live in Sunset Tower. Somebody messed up her name. They were actually looking for Sybil Pulaski. And so Sidel is kind of this like random woman that's like wearing She's a psycho. She's a psycho. (laughs) She matches her clothes to her cane. So she has a cane and every night she like repaints her cane so that it matches. Which I loved by the way. Like, Like you go. Right. Like make it fashion. I love it. Great approach. But she's just insane. And Angela doesn't quite know what to do with her, but they end up kind of striking up like a good little partnership too. Yeah. I mean, I think it's obvious that they both have insecurities and it's sort of like the pretty girl, ugly girl duo. That's sort of a common trope, except it, it's much more dynamic than that. But I think that they both are unheard. They're both unseen, even though, you know, uh, she's so beautiful. Sidel's so happy to be her partner. She's like, finally, people will look at me because look at how pretty my partner is. I mean, she's almost as bad as her mom, Grace. Because She's like, yes, being pretty will solve all of the problems. And I think there's one line where Angela says, if only they knew who I really was, they wouldn't like me anymore. And I was like, because oh, she's a killer, you know, instantly. I just, and it's like, no, it's that she's smart and she has her own ideas and she wants to express them, but feels like that she can't or and that no one will love her if she is the way that she actually is which I think is something that they both struggle with and so I thought again that that pairing was really powerful and profound and if you think of like you know young women reading this too it's like yeah you can actually get the education and if you want get the guy at the end it's possible one of the other lessons that the bustle article that I mentioned lists as like a life lesson that everybody should take from the Weston game is to be on the lookout for unlikely friends. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That is so appropriate. And I think especially in this pairing, Angela is a young 20-year-old beautiful woman who 
never would have looked twice at somebody like Sidel because Sidel's older and, like you said, kind of a psycho. And she ends up learning something from her just in terms of like what really matters in your identity. And, and they strike up a very unique friendship. And I think a lot of these pairings, it's like these people would never have considered being friends with each other. And whether or not they like each other at the end is a different matter entirely, but they all have something to gain from the partnership. And that is a good lesson. It's a great lesson for kids in particular and one that even adults can stand to learn something from. Oh, absolutely. I loved the two of them. And also I am disappointed at one in one scene, they were supposed to show up to the uh, judge Ford's dinner party as twins because they were convinced that one of the clues they had to solve was that someone was a twin. They were going to have matching dresses and she was going to have a fake crutch that was painted and it didn't work out. And I'm like, that was a miss. Yeah. I liked their antics. Like they, they had a lot of funny antics that were very like in my head, I could see them playing out in a really funny way. So we don't always break down endings super explicitly on the show, but this is such a cool one that I think we should try. I think we should try to discuss it. We should try to make sure we have all the details straight. Let's see if we can do it. So I would say the person that really sets all this in motion, which with figuring out what really happened is Judge Ford, because she, from all of her investigative research, figures out that Sam Westing's wife is probably in the mix here. Sam Westing's wife, he believes, is kind of responsible for the death of his daughter, Violet, because Violet killed herself the night before she was meant to marry a politician who Mrs. Westing had pushed her to marry rather than Theo and Chris's dad. So Sam has held his wife responsible for their daughter's death for years and years. And Judge Ford just has just has a hunch that like that has something to do with this, that he's exacting revenge maybe on his wife or that his wife is endangered by all of this. So she wants to figure out who the wife is among this cast of characters. Yeah, I think the reason that this is true is because her goal isn't to play the game. Her goal is like, I need to prevent a murder. Like, I'm a judge, I'm smart, I know how this is going to turn out, and someone else is going to die because someone's pissed, and all this has happened, and we need to find this character. So it's a lot of times less about the money for her, which I think is interesting. Well, she's already made her own money, which I like as, again, as this, like, badass female character that isn't waiting to just hit a windfall of money from Sam Westing. She's also already benefited from his generosity. So I think there's probably a part of her that doesn't necessarily want to lean into this idea that, like, oh, I'll just get more money from him. He already paid for her education. And I think she's sort of, if anything, maybe like doesn't want his money anymore. So you're right. She's focused on much bigger things than his cash. So they end up putting together as a group, they realize that like teamwork makes a dream work as always. As a group of heirs, they put together all of their clues and they realize that the clues that they have on paper make up the vast majority of the song, America the Beautiful, those lyrics are almost perfectly assembled in the clues that Sam Westing has left. And Sam Westing was this super patriotic guy. He's known for his 4th of July party. He always dressed up as different, like, American characters. So He was buried in an Uncle Sam costume. Right. I mean, who isn't? Isn't that normal I know. burial attire? No, but to admit it, that's a big step. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so they then like look at these lyrics and realize that the letters that are missing spell out Bertha Erica Crow, pointing mm-hmm. very clearly to our maid friend, who we already had kind of had a suspicion was maybe Mrs. Westing. Yes. 
but now we know for sure Mrs. Westing is Crow, and she's been kind of like living under the radar for a long time. She did have a run-in with the law. She had a drinking problem. She's sort of just like trying to get her life together after all these things happened with her daughter and her husband and getting divorced. So we know all of that. We've like solved that mystery. Great. Good job, guys. Then there's sort of this parallel thing that we have to figure out about like, so did somebody else murder Sam Westing? Like, so what actually happened with his death? And the big piece of evidence there is that he had been in a car accident years earlier and had had a lot of plastic surgery. So there's no recent photos of him and the car accident had been 15 years prior. So when they remember going to his viewing after his so-called murder, they realized that the body that they saw looked exactly like the pictures that they had from 15 years earlier. So they didn't actually know what he looked like recently. They didn't actually know what that plastic surgery that he'd had on his face amounted to. And so Again, Judge Ford realizes, like, this maybe is not the real guy. Maybe they made a wax dummy of him to match his appearance from 15 years ago, and the real Mr. Westing is running around somewhere with plastic surgery. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Am I getting it right so far? No, that's, yeah, that's absolutely it. And you know what's funny is in the beginning, Turtle mentions like he almost looked like a wax figure like waxy hands so there's all these little things where you if you you pick up pick them up and you're like okay i'm gonna put this in my back pocket this is this isn't going to be important later and yeah that's absolutely at the plastic surgery and judge ford is sort of has this insane like imagine a woman carrying around just case files Mm -hmm. on all these airs all the dirt and um and she starts putting it together that maybe it's not just one identity. Yeah, and that that one of the multiple. heirs is not just the murderer, but is Sam Westing himself. Again, that dun, was the dun, part dun. as a kid where I was like, oh, "You can do that in a book? No way! That's allowed. <laughs> Who knew?" Oh. So we find out that Sam Westing is Sandy McSuthers. The Irish doorman. The (laughs) Irish doorman who Judge Ford has been like underestimating this whole time. As you said, she's like made some comments about like, oh, why should I have to listen to this doorman? And we just realized that he's been like kind of punking everybody this whole time. Like he's been the puppet master. And I... I'm having trouble remembering the details. Like, how did they make the connection again between Sam Westing and Sandy McSouthers? What was the clue there? Because I remember I was, like, very taken with the whole Bertha, Erica Crow mystery being solved. And then there's sort of this other, like, big bombshell at the end, which we'll talk about in a second. And for some reason, the, like, exact link between... Sam Westing and Sandy McSouthers just did not stand out to me as much in all of the chaos of figuring out so many yeah, things. Yeah, I I don't think it was such a big moment. Okay. I think that it was mainly because she had been gathering all of this information with him and Sandy was sort of like, thank you for helping my family, you know, this, because she just gave him the $10,000. I mean, there was definitely, like, she had an affinity for him, which naturally obviously came because they have all this history that she doesn't realize is appropriate there. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's because he fed her all the right clues. Like, ultimately, the guy who's in charge of, like, dealing the deck is saying, like, oh, yes, let me present you with all this information about everyone you need to know. And he just helped give her the final pieces to the puzzle so that she could figure it out. And so when she finally did realize that he was the only person that didn't check out, his background was the only thing that didn't quite add up. 
And I'm pretty sure that's what it was, unless I'm like forgetting some other detail. But I don't think there was any like big event. I think it was her just, and it was such a quiet moment in the book. She was like, ah, I figured it out. Sandy is Sam Westing. And you're like, okay. Cool. Yeah, I think you're right. Cause like I said, I'm not remembering if there was one major clue that linked them. It was just sort of like a matter of deductive reasoning and her being smart. And that was yeah. kind of it. There is one more really cool bombshell at the end that Turtle is responsible for figuring out, which is kind of after all of this is quieted down, Turtle realizes that she'd heard the name of, of the man who's now running Sam Westing's company, which was the Westing Paper Company. And that man was named Julian Eastman. And Turtle very smartly puts the pieces of the puzzle together, realizes that we're talking about Sam Westing, Sandy McSouthers. And she takes herself to like the big mansion um, where Julian Eastman lives. And she realizes that Eastman kind of is a similar sounding name west south now we have julian eastman and she finds out that the the man they all knew only as sam westing is also continuing to live as julian eastman and she goes and finds him herself and becomes his real true heir and goes on to run his company and sort of like lives out the rest of her life taking care of him until he actually dies many years later Yeah, which I love. I mean, because this book has three different endings, Mm -hmm. basically, which I think is fantastic. I love when books do that. It's like, yes, keep giving me more. Keep going into the future. Keep doing this. But yeah, the clue, I forget exactly what it was, but there's one final clue that's like, you'll, you'll find me when you find the fourth. And so, yeah, and they had known Northrop. Yeah, they had known about he, I guess, at that point had revealed himself to also be Barney Northrop, who was the guy at the beginning handing out the invitations to Sunset Towers. And yeah, that's exactly right. She realized that part of the will was that she had to figure out who they were missing. And she had three of the four cardinal directions and she remembered Julian Eastman as the potential fourth and she went to figure that out for herself. All the heirs at this point think that it's over because they've been given shares of the company. So it wasn't like, okay, someone won, here's your 200 million. They were all sort of pacified with, okay, like I'll take shares in the company and, or in the, in the apartment building and that'll be fine. But Turtle's like, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm not me. Well, we we did it, and it was a little exhausting, but I'm, like, a little bit mentally drained from going through all of those details, but I'm proud of us. We actually got back through the journey, you and I together. Can you imagine writing this? Like, it's hard enough to, to read no. it and to understand what's going on. Can you imagine writing it on the fly? I can't. I mean, I really can't. And just reading it, I don't know if what book you purchased, if it looks like this one, but I don't know if you noticed, like, even just the margins – are off in this book. This book does not look like regular books. Even the very first page, it says, let the game begin. And it shows, it's like almost like an advertisement for the apartment building on the very first page. Mm -hmm. And most, like most people would just skip over that. I mean, normally it's like a dedication page, a title page, copyright. And then the margins are super wide and there's all this weird font. I mean, this book is chaos. As you said, every element of it. As a physical object, it's just like packed full with words too. Like the print is small. The margins are really narrow. Like the inner margins basically don't exist. Really enjoyed rereading it. I'm dying to know, Westing Game lover that you are, revisiting it, does it hold up for you or has some of it been lost? No, it totally holds up for me because I got so much more out of it reading it as an adult. I just, I think that I, I kind of just don't remember the middle of it. And even when I started reading it, I was like, okay, I know 
there's some crazy shit that happens at the end, but I couldn't tell you who it is or like how or what. And so even knowing that there's a twist and that one of them is actually Sam Westing, I, I, I didn't know throughout reading the story. And I just thought that that held up so well. And all the little nuances that are layered into this story, I picked up on, I think probably that I didn't as a kid. So it was, it, it's a, it's an inspiring book to read again, to just really read something that's really good storytelling, just really good, simple basic good storytelling good well I always love when I don't ruin a book for someone so I'll take that as a win stepping back from the Westing game is there a book that you're reading now or any books that you've read recently that you would recommend to our listeners we're heading into the holiday season people are traveling hopefully having some downtime what should they be reading well I for my job I read a lot of manuscripts and like to read my own selection of a book is like a gift. (laughs) So, but if people like the sort of detective mystery kind of thing, I'm actually reading a lot of work from one of the estates that we represent, Cornell Woolrich. She was an author from the, you know, twenties to the sixties. And he did a lot of pulp fiction, noir, crime, um, some actually really similar elements of like whodunit. Um, there's a great one called the, um, after dinner story, which feels very similar to this book. So if, if you are into piece it together, crime, sort of like weird noir stories, Cornell Woolrich is amazing. And I'm, I'm always reading his stuff for ideas just for my own projects or inspiration. So that's, that's really who I'm focusing on right now, personal and in my professional life. (laughs) Awesome. Well, he's new to me and I will include a link to some of his work in the show notes, along with a link to the Westing games that you can pick this one up. I would recommend this as a holiday read. You can finish it in probably one or two sittings with a good blanket around you and maybe some hot chocolate or wine or whatever floats your boat. I think it was a good holiday read. I I totally agree. Or listen to the audiobook while you're driving, as I did for the second half. That's true. That's a very good recommendation for travel. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us on SSR. This was so fun. I really appreciate your time, and I hope you have a great day. Yes, you too. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.